0: Matthew chapter seven. We're going to look from verses thirteen through to the end of the chapter to verse 29. We're looking at uh, the closing words to Jesus, very famous sermon, probably the most famous speech that that Jesus has ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I don't know if you're here with us for the first time, maybe you've heard of this sermon. Uh, Recently, this week, I got a book on historic speeches, and this sermon is ranked as one of the most famous speeches given in human history. Gandhi said that this sermon filled his heart with bliss. Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian author, said that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was the blueprint for utopia. Uh, And apparently, I heard this week, that George W. Bush, when he was inaugurated as American president, said that he was going to base his policies upon Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's not a great advert for the Sermon on the Mount. But part of me wonders if if any of these people who praise this sermon as a kind of system of ethics have actually ever read it. Because this sermon is brutal. And especially what we're going to see tonight as Jesus concludes it. This is not a map on how we are to live the best life. This is not a a kind of political system that we are to adopt. This is not a basis for uh, ethical living. This sermon that Jesus has been preaching, that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, has had one real purpose, and that is to show what authentic followers of Jesus should look like. That's the purpose of this sermon. What does it look like to be an authentic follower of Jesus? And the way that Jesus does that is to kind of contrast two types of people, both of whom are are very religious, both of whom are very nice, both of whom go to church, but ultimately one trusts himself and the other trusts in God. So Jesus contrasts throughout this sermon the idea of, I guess, fake Christianity and real Christianity. Um, you've seen that he constantly pits these two people uh, against each other. You'll notice that the contrast has been stark. Jesus has been uh, teaching about two types of righteousness, one that thirsts for God and one that exalts self. There are two types of reward, one that is heavenly and one that is earthly. There are two things that you can worship, either money or God. There are two ways that you can treat others, either judgmentally or with humble, sacrificial service. And now as we, as we come to the conclusion of this great sermon, Jesus calls us to make a choice. Because ultimately, there are two ways that you can live in your life. A self-righteous one or a genuine, heartfelt devotion to him And the genuine one is extremely hard while the self-righteous one is very easy and it's very, very attractive. Now we must listen tonight. Please, please do not fall asleep. Please do not switch off because Jesus' conclusion to this sermon is a warning that he gives to the church. And when Jesus warns the church, we must listen to him. He is going to say tonight, and this is what's really shocking about the whole Sermon on the Mount, really shocking. He is going to say that there are people who come to church and who are good and who are nice and who appear very religious, but who will spend eternity in hell. So we're not playing games, we're not offering ethical advice, we're looking tonight at where we're going to spend eternity. And the deception that he warns of here in this conclusion is so subtle, and it often comes through so-called churches. So we must heed this, because many of you here might go on, uh, if you're students especially, might go on to work in a different city, and you might be looking for a church. It's important that you find a genuine gospel-centered church, so that you won't be led astray, And I want you to know that tonight's teaching is hard. This is one of the hard teachings of Jesus. Uh, And part of me doesn't want to teach it because I don't like talking about hell and judgment. I don't like it personally, but it is real. It is logical. It is scriptural. And it is totally in line with the goodness and the mercy of God that we see all throughout the entire Bible. And there are people who will go there. And Jesus' warning at the end of this sermon is given so that people will not go there. Because he knows it's real. And he wants to warn us of the realities of this danger. And This warning is given out of love. And it's given out of mercy. So let's read what Jesus has to say in the conclusion to this this wonderful sermon. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 Enter by the narrow gate for the way is wide for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits For the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, before we look at this passage, let's pray for God's help to understand it. Father, we need your help tonight. Father, what we are looking at is not just um, a historical document, It is not mere words on page, but it is the living, breathing word of God. Father, I pray that we would see beyond who is speaking, and we would see and hear the voice of Jesus tonight, that we would listen to Jesus, that we would not be disobedient to Jesus, but that we would heed these warnings that he gives us out of love and mercy because he cares for us. Father, may we... Not ignore this. May we take it and may we understand it. And the only way that can happen is by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray for his help this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that idea of kind of contrast that has been all throughout the Sermon on the Mount really comes to the forefront in the conclusion where Jesus calls us to choose what way we are going to respond to this sermon. So you'll see on your um, service sheet, I've got an outline uh, put just prior to it, what we have seen so far in the sermon, the sections that we have looked at, just to kind of jog your memory if you have been here. Uh, And in that outline, you'll see that it is very much made up of this two ways to live idea. And so the first thing that Jesus warns us of is is he says, be warned, there are two gates that you can go on but only one leads to life. There are two gates that you can walk through, but only one leads to life. Jesus, as he concludes here, he begins kind of with a very vivid picture and illustration as he has often done throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's a master preacher, as we've been saying, and he just comes up with very great, simple, yet powerful illustrations. And so he he gets his readers, he gets us as listeners even, to um, think about these two paths. So I guess imagine you're going for a walk up Arthur's seat, and you've got the broad path where everyone's walking up, uh, lots of people on it, broad, wide gate at the bottom. And then a little offshoot of that would be a single little narrow gate, perhaps with a turnstile. And it follows a very narrow, difficult, winding path that goes up past rocky crags, that looks very dangerous, that perhaps only a few eccentrics would go on. Except in Jesus' illustration, the shocking thing is that, that these two paths have two very different destinations the broad path that, that everyone is walking on that is easy and wide and comfortable jesus says that is what leads to destruction and the narrow path the difficult path the complex path that is what leads to life So he's saying as he concludes this sermon, look, there's two responses to this. There's the easy way or there's the hard way. But they both lead to very different places. One is going to lead you to destruction. It's another word for talking about hell and the eternal punishment of God. And the other is going to lead you to life. To eternal blessing and joy with God the Father. That's what he's saying here in these two verses. And the thing that, that makes it even more shocking is that this broad road that leads to destruction is very, very religious. You see, we mustn't think that Jesus is saying that, that the narrow road is Christianity, the narrow, difficult way is Christianity, but the broad, easy way is, is everything else. It's not what he's saying. We we've, we've see this in, in the context of what he's been speaking of in this sermon. The narrow road is authentic Christianity and the broad road is another form of Christianity. One that is non-authentic, not real. So the broad road has churches on it. The broad road has people who wear dog collars and clerical dress on it. And likewise, those who don't, who are, who are maybe part of very trendy churches. The broad road has people who pray and who give to the poor. Jesus talks about them in Matthew chapter 6. But fundamentally the broad road is full of people. Who use their morality. To disguise their self-righteousness. These are, are people who hear the words of Jesus in the sermon. and the sermon on the mount. And they either find it too hard or too restrictive. So they ignore it and they twist it. And they distort it to suit their own ends. They pick and choose from what Jesus says. Well, I don't like what, I don't like when Jesus talks about hell, so I'm not going to talk about that. I don't like the the fact that Jesus says that there's only one way to salvation and it's only through Him. So I'm not going to talk about that. It's, it's too narrow. We need to broaden out. And people on on the broad road love to compromise on the Bible, especially if they find that the Bible's teaching goes against common cultural trends. Because they want to be where, where everyone else is, where everyone else is walking. You know, I was thinking on this passage in the car and I, um, as I was driving, and I have a confession to make. I don't usually do this. But I was flicking through the radio stations, and I listened to Radio 4. Um, And I figure this is the last time, given that that Kyrene and I are going off to to be involved in a church plant and a housing scheme in Dundee, this is the last time I can use a Radio 4 illustration. Um, But I was listening to it, um, and they were having a debate on Radio 4 about interfaith services. And in that discussion, there was a vicar uh, and a bishop. Um, And there was uh, one sort of evangelical Christian flying the flag for for orthodoxy. But the vicar and the bishop were saying how it was so important that we had these interfaith services where we all worshipped at the same time, because we're all worshipping the same God. And they said, and they used the terms, we are a broad church. And much of what they said is what Jesus says here. Look, there was no one more inclusive than Jesus. In that sense, he calls everyone, all people to himself to be saved. There's no barriers of race or gender or nationality or any other barriers that we like to put up. But all must come to Christ to be saved. But inclusivity does not compromise on the truth. It unites around it. And when we hear discussions like that on the radio that's so normal, it should break our heart. Because when the church compromises on truth, on compromises on the words of Jesus, on the word of God, and it goes down that broad road to try and appease cultural trends, it goes on a road that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's not just religious, but it's irreligious people that are on this broad road. There's lots of people on this road. The two paths in life are this. Trust in yourself or trust in Jesus. Trust in yourself for salvation or trust in Jesus for your salvation. You can trust in yourself in a very religious way in which it's all about you and your morality. And, and you compromise on truth because you really care more about how you appear to others than what's true and what Jesus has said. Or you can trust in yourself in a a non-religious way. I know many people said to me when they think about the idea of of heaven and hell, they they think, well, I'll be okay because I've lived a good life. And it's about me justifying myself, my own righteousness. And so if that is what the broad path is, people who are self-righteous then it makes sense that that it has to be bound for hell. It has to be bound for destruction. Why? Because if you try and live a life without God, then you will get an eternity without God. That's what hell is when after constant pleading, God eventually says to rebellious human beings, let me give you what you want. And how cruel would it be if this is a reality, if there are people on this road, how cruel would it be if Jesus knew about this, but he did not say anything? This is why he is warning at the end of this sermon. But amidst this warning, there's also meant to be real encouragement. See, people on this narrow path, this difficult path, are people whom Jesus says, well, he begins his sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the people on the narrow path. People who are poor in spirit, who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt, who come to Jesus knowing that they can't trust in themselves, but they must lean wholly on Him and His righteousness. The path they walk is narrow, it is hard, and it is unpopular. How's that an encouragement? Well, here's how this is an encouragement because it is hard to be a Christian. It's hard to to strive for holiness, to live the way that Jesus tells us to live in the sermon. It's hard because the real Jesus is tremendously unpopular, and I feel so outnumbered, and I wonder if this is even right. It's hard because I'm, I'm trying my best, but I find it all a struggle. It's hard to forsake yourself completely and to trust him completely. Don't get me wrong, it is amazing to do that and it's so wonderfully liberating to be freed from self-righteousness. And Jesus has told us all throughout this sermon, and we mustn't miss this, he has told us of the great benefits of calling God our heavenly father, of being connected to him the great benefits of knowing that he loves you and that he has saved you and that he has taken away all the punishment that your sin deserves, the great joy and the contentment that comes from that that is totally unparalleled to anything else. But it's still hard. And there's comfort in the fact that Jesus says that's normal. If you're wanting to live for Jesus with all integrity and you find it a struggle, it usually means you're on the right path. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness and not their own. Blessed are you, says Jesus, when people revile you for my name's sake. Second warning that Jesus gives us in this passage is to say that there are two teachers that you can listen to, but only one is true. And we see that in verses 15 through to 23. And these verses highlight that what Jesus is talking about here in his conclusion is the danger of authentic Christianity in comparison to a false form of Christianity. Because on the broad path will be teachers. People who claim to teach God's word but who will seek to lead others astray on the path to destruction. Verse 15, beware of false shepherds, of false prophets, sorry, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware, says Jesus. One of the biggest threats that you face as a Christian is not suffering, it's not death, it's not terrorism. As big as a threat as they are, The biggest threat that we face that the New Testament highlights time and time again is false teaching. Because all these other threats, at the end of the day, the worst that will happen is that you will die and you will go to be with Christ in glory. But the threat of false teaching can lead you away from Christ for all eternity. And these false teachers who Jesus tells us we've got to watch out for. They don't come into the church with big neon flashing lights saying, I'm a false teacher. They will be very nice, very religious, in amongst the sheep disguised as one of the sheep, waiting for a moment to devour, waiting to lead people away from truth onto that broad path. I can't tell you how many times I've heard so-called ministers say something like, well, I used to be an evangelical, but it was just too narrow for me. I used to believe that the Bible was the, word of, the God, word of God, but I thought that was too restrictive. But I think Jesus is probably talking about something even more subtle here. I think many of these false teachers he, he tells us to be aware of will have all the appearance of orthodoxy, but they won't live it and they won't teach it. So they might not deny that Jesus has died for our sins. Or they might not deny the realities of hell and judgment which Jesus speaks of here. It's just that they won't affirm it either. Disguised in, in orthodoxy, but inwardly there's no real concern. Now we've got to be really careful here. F- careful here because false teachers is, is a fairly nuclear term to use for someone and some christians brandish it about far too easily with with kind of self-righteous arrogance and folly we've got to take this teaching remember what we've seen throughout the sermon on the mount we've got to take this teaching with the the teaching that jesus gives earlier in chapter 7 verse 1 do not judge lest you yourself be judged So don't judge self-righteously thinking that that you've got it all sussed. Some Christian teachers, myself included, can just genuinely, with all honesty, just be misinformed or or make honest mistakes. Sometimes we can have different views on, on, I guess, kind of secondary or tertiary issues, but still be on the same narrow path because we hold to the core tenets of Jesus' teaching and the Bible. But nonetheless, says Jesus, there will be false teachers. So how do you know? Verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. What does that mean? Well, Matthew's gospel, fruit is the outward lifestyle of someone who is constantly in repentance before God. So the illustration is you've got two trees, two teachers. They look exactly the same. But over time, one will produce fruit and the other won't. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist says to the Pharisees, and this is really a sermon that is rebuking them. John the Baptist says to these Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, live in a way that shows that you really believe that you are a repentant sinner, that that you need God's grace and God's mercy every day. And so if you see a Bible teacher who, has, who does not have any sort of awareness of their own failures, who thinks that they are somehow better than others, who is self-righteous, then something is terribly amiss. If they are living a lifestyle in which they are constantly doing something that is wrong, in which they are speaking in a way that is not upbuilding or encouraging, but bringing others down. If they are not teaching the whole truth of the Bible, and if they are not constantly calling people to repentance, then something is wrong. And again we, we've got to be careful here. We can't make this like like the like the Salem witch trials in Arthur, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, where we're kind of sniffing for false teachers like some sort of crazed heresy pit bull. Jesus doesn't call us he doesn't call us to go and hunt out false teachers. He just says, Beware, beware, be aware that in the church there will be people who stand in pulpits who will deceive. You know, I like listening to preachers online. I think that's a great thing to do and I would strongly recommend that we, we, you do do that. It's really helpful to find good Bible teachers and to listen to them online. But if that was all I did, I would be in real danger of false teaching. Why? Because you identify false teaching through how people live. I can't tell when I'm listening to someone online if their lifestyle is in keeping with a lifestyle of repentance. And you here at Chalmers should, hopefully, I pray, see that in us, your teachers. Look at verse 21 to 23. They're some of the most terrifying and sober verses in the entire Bible. Jesus tells us that there will be teachers. And I don't think he's just talking of teachers here. I think he's talking of people who are in the church who will be sent to an eternity without him. They seem very pious. They call Lord, Lord. They seem very impressive. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do mighty works? They have all the right chat. But at the end of the day, it's just empty words for empty hearts. And Jesus says that dreadful phrase, depart from me, I never knew you. You remember Jesus' choice here at the end of the sermon is between trusting in yourself and trusting in him. That's ultimately the choice you're left with in Christianity. Are you going to really trust Jesus or are you going to trust yourself? And you can see that these people don't trust Jesus because look at what they say. In the Greek it's it's maybe more explicit. They say, did not we prophesy? Did not we cast out demons? Did not we do mighty works? In other words, Jesus, look at all the things that I have done for you look at me and my work. You know, when a genuine follower of Jesus stands before his throne on the day of judgment, they dare not appeal to their religious deeds. They dare not. We stand before the throne, and our only appeal is the mercy and the grace of Jesus himself. That's the only way we can really be with God. God does not want mindless devotion that is simply there really to feed pride and self-righteousness. He wants a relationship. That's what Jesus is saying here. Genuine, humble repentance and love for him. He wants us to know him and to be known by him. That leads on to the final point. There are two foundations you can build upon, but only one will stand. Let me just ask you a question off of the back of of verse 21 to 23. Does that worry you? Because it worries me that there will be people who, who claim to have done these great things for Jesus. Who will be judged by him on the day of judgment. Does that worry you? It terrifies me. And we must examine our own hearts in light of this. But know this, Jesus doesn't speak these words to challenge our assurance that we will be saved. It terrifies me that there are people like that. But he is not wanting to to shake our assurance that somehow we have got to constantly be assessing whether or not we will be saved. There is no condemnation for those who've genuinely followed Jesus Christ. That is a rock-solid truth. No matter how much I muck up or how much I fall, not condemned is the verdict that will always be pronounced on me. Jesus has died on the cross. He has taken already the punishment for all my sin, past, present, and future, and that is done. But the way that we get the kind of assurance that we need to know that that is true is to constantly be making sure that we are not looking to ourselves and our own religious deeds, but to always be looking to him. And that's what he's getting us to do. You see, these verses call us all the more to forsake ourselves and our self-righteousness and to put all our hope and all our trust upon Jesus. It can't be me. This calls us to say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I will not say, look at me. Look at what I've done. I cling to Jesus alone. That is the the heart cry of authentic Christianity. And you can tell that's you if you listen to the words of Jesus and you really strive to live by it. Not perfectly, because remember, Jesus calls us, be perfect. That's the standard, so we're not going to achieve that in this life. But we strive for that. We really try and live the way that Jesus wants us to live. Not out of fear, but out of love. Not because we we need to be accepted, but because we already are accepted. Accepted. And that's Jesus' illustration in in verse 24 to 27. There are two different house, two houses on two different foundations. The house on the strong foundation, that's the people who listen. And notice verse 24, very important, who listen and who do what Jesus says. These are, are genuine followers of Jesus and they listen to this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and they don't ignore it, but they seek to live it. Not on their own strength. Remember earlier Jesus says we can't do it on our own. We've got to always be asking and seeking and knocking. We've got to ask God's help. Asking constantly that that God would help us to, to live in obedience to his word. They don't live in order to be accepted by God, but because they already are accepted. They live as if God really was their father. They love Jesus. They love his word. They build their whole life upon the foundation of his word. It is the foundation. It is the baseline. It is the motivation for everything. But the foolish person who builds his house upon the sand, that is someone who hears the words. Did you see that? Jesus says that person hears this word, listens to the Bible teaching, reads the Bible, but does not do them. They listen, but Jesus really isn't the driving force in their lives. Their foundation is the approval of others, their own self-righteousness or their own desires and comforts. Jesus is there, yeah. But he's just peripheral. He's he's maybe like a window in the house. He's not the foundation. And the storm that Jesus speaks of in this parable is not the troubles of life. The storm is, is a reference coming from the Old Testament to describe judgment day. Those who have their foundation on Jesus' word will stand. But look at the very last words of this magnificent sermon of Jesus. Those who have heard but have done nothing. Great will be their fall. Look, Jesus warns because he loves us. (laughs) He warns because he really, really loves us. And he wants us to listen. And he didn't just give us advice. He's here to help us, to perfect us, to make us like him. Some of you may be here for the first time and You know, this is, I guess, quite an intense ending to um, this sermon. And you may be aware of the sharp contrast that Jesus has done here. Maybe you just need to weigh out these claims for yourself. It's very black and white, and it's very clear. You can trust in yourself, or you can trust in Jesus. It's the two options. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. We need to assess these claims. Weigh them out, because we're not playing games We're talking about eternity here. And some of you may have been coming to this church for a long time, and you've heard the Bible preached, but you have made no commitment to Jesus. You're going to have to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, and you will not be able to say on that day, Lord, I didn't know. It's really hard to follow Jesus. The narrow path is really hard but life change is hard when he wants to, to turn you around completely. When he wants to help you. There's a great bit in, uh, in C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, where, where he, he talks about how difficult it is to follow Jesus. And he says, this is the imagined words of Christ. You have free will. And if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see the job through. I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he says he is well pleased with me. And tonight Jesus is crying out to you not to go down that broad road but to come to him and to forsake all your pride and to give your sin to him. Let him bear the punishment of your sin. And know the joy of what it means to call God my father. That's what he is offering at the end of this sermon. And for those of us who who do call God our father. We we have to heed these warnings of Jesus. Because he he speaks as one who is trying to help us and to give us assurance. Jesus warns because he loves and wants us to trust him completely. He wants us to have a firm foundation. His words are are like a sharp prod that that drive us into taking action and to listening and to doing. And what have we done off the back of the Sermon on the Mount? We can't just take this and file it away as moderately important for another day. Let's do it. Let's listen and do it. We mustn't do nothing about it. And when we have obedience to his words as our foundation in life, we can be confident. We can walk that narrow, difficult path with joy and security. And we can confidently sing these words of our closing hymn. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he'll never, no never, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, No, never forsake. Let's pray. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus, you teach as one who has immense authority because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God, the one who knows the beginning and the end. Help us to listen, to heed these warnings. Lord Jesus, I pray that our church here at Chalmers and every individual in it would build their foundation upon obedience to the word of God. Jesus, may we be genuine and real and honest. May we show integrity. May we not serve ourselves, but serve you. May we beware of people who want to lead us away from the truth and may we walk the narrow path that is difficult and that is hard but that leads ultimately to the eternal joy and peace and security that we can have with God our Father that you Lord Jesus purchased for us thank you Jesus that we don't need to do anything to be saved apart from trust in you and follow you. But may that be real and genuine. Father, make us genuine followers of this this great King, and may we never cease to proclaim the salvation which he so freely offers to the entire world. In his name, amen.